Hello. Hey. Welcome to Ergo. You're here. We're here. This is Ergo. I'm Kiss. I'm Damon. And what we do here is reshape the culture of our city and world for the more liberatory and creative. That's what we've been doing. <laughs> it's what we keep saying we do. And uh, I, I think we're doing a decent job at it, you know. And we have a special episode for you this time. It is an honor and a privilege and a joy to be in conversation with the one and only Bernadine Dorn. Bernadine is a phenomenal organizer and movement builder. You know, some short cliff notes for those who are unfamiliar. Uh, J. Edgar Hoover once named Bernadine the most dangerous woman in America as she was put on the FBI's most wanted list, replacing Angela Davis's spot, um, and was a a part of the ethos and ecosystem that built uh, the Rainbow Coalition in close collaboration with the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party, spearheaded by Fred Hampton. So we go into a little bit of that history, and it's really an honor. Bernadine, her partner Bill, who's a close collaborator and has been on the show, her family and their comrades are at the center of a really important project and show called Mother Country Radicals that goes in-depth into her story. Yeah, we shared the trailer for Mother Country Radicals right around when it came out. And I was like, oh, yeah, like, we'll do we'll do a favor for this show. It, it seems good. And then it went on to become, like, arguably the most popular podcast of the last five years. And for good reason. It's really, really good. There's also historical context that we don't go into fully in this conversation with kind of the assumption that either you know a little bit of Bernadine's history or have listened to Mother Country Radicals. So if you haven't, we recommend either listening to this and then going into that or vice versa. Um, and, you know, beyond just this particular person, it's a really important piece of movement history, of radical political history, uh, and of American history and something that people should know about because it informs so much of how movement functions today. And it's really an honor to be in relationship, to be in community with Bernadine, but definitely for us to sit and have this conversation in their beautiful, utopic home in Northern California um, that we talk a little bit about in the episode. So it's a, it's a great setting for a wonderful conversation. And also want to shout out On the Margins and the Dali program and Danny, who brought us out to California in the first place and made uh, a wonderful trip possible for us and our partners. Yeah, Dali is a program uh, just north of the Bay in California that convenes Sonoma County high school students to build educational justice projects. And we've had the great joy of facilitating their culminating retreat the last two years. And it's been such a joy to learn from them. And I think that experience really set up a lot of the questions that we ask Bernadine. So make sure you check out their work at onthemargins.us. And keep an eye on the Ergo feed and all of our socials for some very exciting announcements in the next couple of weeks. We've got a lot of great work coming for you that we're very proud to share. But for now, Let's get into it with Bernadine Dorn. Let's get it. Okay, we are here. We are at Studio Redwoods. <laughs> <laughs> this is a really... A really special opportunity for us that I'm really honored to sit down with you. We have the one and only legendary Bernadine Dorn. Bruh, bruh, bruh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh. the full, the you get the full gamut. There. All the... <laughs> we don't break out the maids for everybody. <clears throat> well, the honor is mine, as you can imagine. I love what you are doing. I love your show. I love you both. And so uh, the honor is mine to be sitting here talking with you. 
I'm here smiling with glee. You know where we're going. Our two-part question to start us off in this time, whether it be this day, hour, season, or lifetime, how is the world treating you and how are you treating the world, Bernadine? I've listened to so many of your openings like that, and uh, I don't have anything clever to say, <laughs> but except I'll say two things. One is the world has treated me so well, and I'm so fortunate, and I have so much privilege and cushioning to get me through hard times that um, can't ask for more than that. Friends and comrades who I've known for decades and uh, a whole lifetime. So that's the first part of that is bliss. How am I treating the world? Of course, is much more challenging. I'm, uh, you know, doing my best to tear down the infrastructure of crime and punishment that seems to me to permeate every aspect of our lives in the United States and also around the world. And uh, and wars, what can I say? I, I've been a fighter, but I don't want any more wars, none. So for listeners, you may hear some breeze in the background. You may hear a river rushing in the distance. Uh, you might even hear a goat from time to time. And, and as Damon mentioned, we're, we're recording this in a really remarkable location that we've had the privilege this week to spend uh, this beautiful time with you and Bill and our partners. Obligatory and excited shout out to Rosie and Jennifer. You know, as much or as little as you want to share about it, can you just paint the picture of where we are and maybe what this place has come to mean for you? Well, we had a very lucky experience in our days in which the back to the land, the hippie movement, the movement toward agriculture and and uh, recognition of the land that we live on, the early days of the environmental movement, collided with our agitational and underground work. And we were in Northern California uh, back in the 70s when our friends were starting the first big political, and maybe they weren't the first, maybe there were hundreds before them, um, communes. They were kind enough to shelter us when we wanted shelter and time out from the city lives. And they also uh, were forging, you know, the idea of a different world where you grow healthy food and live in a healthy environment and get rid of the people who are cutting down all the trees and destroying the environment and polluting the environment. And so our friends uh, were going off in a whole direction of how we could live more sustainably on the planet and live more communally and collectively. And so we were able to be part of it without only being part of it and continue on our agitational guerrilla underground <laughs> days. So it, it, they, that's where we are. We're with those folks who were generous and wonderful with us back in the day. And our kids have, we've continued to come back here far away from Chicago, which we love best of all. But as you now see, just a gorgeous spot on a wild, undammed river in Northern California. Yeah, it's spectacular. As you know now a little bit, we're on Karuk land. Uh, this land, this beautiful place where uh, friends of ours have made a commune, <clears throat> sort of a commune, a modern day commune. There's <laughs> uh, real characters out here. I, I think you have... If anyone has achieved a commune, this is a, this is definitely indeed 
a modern day commune. Well, I feel like it's a commune now that you've been here with oh. your partners because now <laughs> it, it ties us in. But what I wanted to acknowledge is that this is native land, of course. There's lots of reparations happening, I think, and more needed. So we're temporarily on this beautiful piece of land. It's a funny moment in the land because the river, which really defines usually our days and the sounds that we wake up to and so on, is overriding its banks and is at the at the fullest and unswimmable state that it's ever been in the 20 years and 30 years that we've been coming here. So that's odd. And yet you've discovered a little waterfall, one spot on the land that's still you know, looks like, uh, I don't know what, somebody's imagination of paradise. And uh, we're just so happy that you're here with us. So, one, again, just thank you for the nurturing love and hospitality and inviting us in this family home that y'all built and introducing us to your community. And in experiencing it, it's clear how regenerative it is and how much space you must get for reflection and processing, and thought, and even memory, and building memory with your comrades. And it's this like living shrine to time, right? Like y'all have been here for 50 years or so, or like... Something like that. You know, a a lifetime for many. That's right. Our first son was just born, and he's now 55. Yeah, yeah. So so developing this space, coming back, understanding the seasons. And so I want to do a big question. Is that okay? Can I go big? That's great. In feeling this this space of reflection and you having this lifetime of experiences that are so unique in that you have faced the height of like state surveillance and suppression and have opposed nation state imperialism at a, a, a level that very few have like sustained or experienced, but you've also had this lifetime of nurturing and building relationship and being in community and really being low key in in your own way. I'm curious, what are the big questions that are still on your heart? Like the the things that you're still wrestling with, the answers that you still been struggling to find before. I have a million questions that I want to get to, but I want to know what are some of the big questions that you want to invite other people to wrestle with that you've been holding from all of these experiences that shape this magnificent life that you've held? (laughs) I still don't know how to, you know, argue without being polarizing. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm an arguing person, and I actually feel like I learn by arguing. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> I've always thought I don't want to get rid of it exactly. This is how I know what I think. It's not just arguing to myself in the middle of the night. It's arguing with somebody who's arguing back to me. Uh, so I don't exactly shy away from struggle or from differences. But I have learned, and I think places like this, our children, many things have contributed to me finding roundabout ways (laughs) of not going full-fledged into, you know, confrontation and argument as a way of learning. So I've tried to have some new ways to learn and I, you know, of course, now that I'm really old in my <laughs> 80s, you know, I I can laugh at my earlier self, but I also still feel it 
lurching up at me <laughs> when I read the morning paper or listen to the news or, you know, in the middle of a struggle. Mm. It's interesting. So you, you named arguing and you named finding these ways around confrontation. And it's something that I think about a lot is the difference between confrontation and conflict, right? Confrontation has this like head to head, face to face directness that I think people, forces, ideologies can be in conflict in ways that don't mean that they are in opposition. Exactly. Does that make sense? And well, does that I'm, I believe in dialectical materialism. So I think everything is always in motion and, uh, you know, nothing's standing still. Everything is always changing, you know, me certainly. So to be with it, recognize that and not fear it. And some forms of that kind of contradiction, facing contradiction, turns into, you know, to the death struggle. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and some of it has to, because some of it is really um, the death star, you know, into life, to equality, to flourishing. You're taking us down this path of struggle, but still coexisting in that struggle. And you started talking about how you interact with others, but but you named that there's also this conflict or contradiction or dialectic within you. You you use the phrase past self. And I wanna I wanna pull that out a little bit of is that a, a defined relationship? Because there is this life that you led that is so dramatic. <laughs> Do you feel a, a a distance or does that feel still embodied as you? You said past self. So I just want to hear you talk more about how that, that comes up for you. Well, my past self, I would say, was so certain of what was right and wrong. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I was very wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I know that's ridiculous. Out. And I know you're going to hold on to that. <laughs> I mean, what I mean is... But it checks out, a lot of it. <laughs> I have few regrets in the big sense of, you know, I really wish I'd led a different life or had made some major different changes. I feel very grateful to have been part of the struggles that I was part of. I, I was going to tell you that I was, you know, a, a second-year law student when Dr. King came to Chicago, December, and then January of 66. And I just said to myself, I, you know, was not brave enough to go south and join the struggle in the South. And now the South is coming here. And if I don't do it, if I don't find some way to hurl myself into it, I'll regret it forever. And I, that, that was, for me, just a life changer in terms of how I thought of myself, you know, who I could be, what issues, mainly, you know, the horrible, all-encompassing vise of racism in the United States and the U.S.'s endless wars in the world, that, that if, if I couldn't throw myself into those issues, then it turned out there were many more like gender and things that came along. I, I would regret it forever. I would feel like I had, you know, passed on an opportunity. So that just threw me into a whole, you know, four decades of, of struggle and of friendships and of learning from hopefully from my own mistakes, but other people's mistakes, and feeling like who would want to live a life without that as part of it? This this being compelled or like pulled in or this notion of if I don't, I already can feel the regret. Right. 
was that like a one-time experience that set you on a path that you never looked back from? Or was that a continual process? Did you have other forks in the roads like that or other moments you remember of like, I have to go further because if I don't, I will. Yeah, sure. I would say there were two other big ones. One was deciding to go underground and build a clandestine operation. And the other was to decide to have children, which I had always said, no, not me. You can't be a fighter and have children. So those two things shaped who I am today, of course, and changed who I imagined I would be or was, stretched me out, threw me into a new, I don't know what, environment, a new, a new, it's not like it was a path. It certainly wasn't exactly one path, but it threw me into growing parts of myself and finding those parts in other people so that friendships and comradeships and sisterships could flourish. I wonder if this is a fair question to ask, but in that, you know, we, that complication of past self, you know, who did you think you were going to become before that, before you made those choices? Like if you, you know, let's say you're 20, you're imagining what your life is going to look like. What were you, if there is an answer, what were you picturing? I think that you would have to say it was more negative portrait. I don't want that. You know, my mother was a terrific person. And as she grew older, and even as she plunged into Alzheimer's, she was more and more deep and funny and complex than I could have possibly imagined that she was when I was a teenager, for example. But I was, you know, tiptoeing around my parents well into my mid-20s. I mean, I was lying to them when I moved to New York uh, to work for the National Lawyers Guild about where I was living and <laughs> that, I, that I wasn't living with a man. I mean, you know, th- th- it was those very rigid 50s that I grew up in. Um, and getting out of it took me a while. And then I put my parents through 10 years of hell where they were hounded by the authorities and the FBI constantly. And they managed to stand tall and to do their very best. And then luckily they lived a long time and we got to have a long time together at the end of their lives. So that's an example of where I feel like I was fortunate enough to have a long enough life to, you know, not just make up to friends that I had been mean to in SDS or the weather underground, but my own family, you know, and, uh, when I wake up in the middle of the night and then I, the thoughts that come around me, I feel like the world is treating me so well. And I'm just fortunate to be in this moment. And, you know, a lot of that has to do, I just want to add one more thing, with watching you, you two, your partners, your friends, your comrades, and the way in which you have led us into a part of the movement and into a part of your lives. And that means to me it's not separate from our earlier life. It's a continuation of it. And I'm very, very grateful for that. It's beautiful to watch the way you continue to show up in this like deepened presence that I see you have in the way that, you know, I'll speak for myself. I, even before this trip and this experience have felt very much in your legacy and lineage and very much treated like family and loved on and cared for and movement parented. So one, just want to continue to say thank you for that because I know you 
and your family and your partner have done that for hundreds, if not thousands of people over the last few decades. So there's going to be a lot of people hearing this who have sat at your table, who have listened to your stories, who have, you know, ate with you, who have traveled with you, who are so appreciative for that. Um, Who have been affirmed by you. There's something you just named in reflecting on relationship to your parents. And as I am in this space and feel so connected to your family, through Malik, have learned a lot about transition and about reverence and ancestry and how to continue to have relationships with people even beyond when they're here. And so you said you had this long experience of your parents aging with you. How has your relationship shifted or grown or changed as you get closer to the age you saw them at Mm. now? Yeah. Well, they're long gone, of course, now, since I'm so old. But, uh, you know, I, it took me a long time to appreciate or to imagine, really, because they, they never talked about their teenage years. It just wasn't something that happened in the 50s. Your parents didn't, my parents didn't tell those kind of stories. Uh, and they had didn't have good stories, you know. My mom was orphaned. <laughs> I don't mean sorry, no, I don't mean good stories. Story. I mean they had unhappy stories. Uh, okay, my we, mom. We, we sorry. David David took it as just like they weren't good storytellers. <laughs> I, know, I know that's what <laughs> I'm correct. <laughs> the climax, yeah. the inside incident, they didn't break it down. No, of course. No, I hear. They you. had sorry. troubled and difficult lives, yes. and the fact that they were able to become good parents remains awesome to me because since I did children's rights for decades, I always thought having good parents had a lot to do with how you could parent, you know, and how good a parent you would be. But in any event, they hung on, my parents, and my sister and I took them for a ride. And uh, the FBI took them for a worse ride. And so, you know, I think about them now that I'm the age they were. But I also would just want to say that our comrades, you know, I feel like it's been a beautiful, lucky thing that most of us have found each other again, and most of us have told each other how much we loved each other and how much we learned from each other and how much we regret any mean thing we ever said in a criticism, self-criticism session (laughs) (laughs) and um, in meetings or speeches where struggle was at a peak. Not that you shouldn't have struggle, obviously, but we didn't know how that could be kind and harsh at the same time, or honestly severe and loving at the same time. Actually, this is one of my biggest burning questions in my little singular decade in movement space. (laughs) (laughs) And again, for folks listening, you know, we're assuming that there's some familiarity, right? But when when Bernadine says comrades, like just want to acknowledge that you have been in a global coalition of folks resisting state violence, repression, oppression, and in many cases at the highest stakes that have happened in the last half century. And so you reference going underground, and we'll say this a bunch of times, if you haven't already, go listen to Mother Country Radicals before, after, during this conversation. And there's so much of the narrative that we're not going to recover here but the experiences shape the questions that we're asking. And so you just referenced again this notion of reconnecting with your comrades, feeling like these self-criticism strategies y'all had were too harsh or damaging. And what I've seen in, in my experience is 
our generation has not had really high level ideological tensions or political splits. It has been the ability to coexist with each other, to hold all that we bring to spaces, all of the anxieties and depressions and traumas and struggles, to be able to hold seeing those show up in other people's, our limitations, our lack of capacity, our communication gaps. That is what I've experienced hampering us, not not even more than state repression or infiltration more than these are the maoists and these are the communists yeah. and these are the black nationalists. you know it's not the- yeah more than policy disagreements has been this ability to relate and sustain and so I'm, i i well, want bless you i mean i think <laughs> no i know i've watched you pretty up close and i am and i'm in awe of it because i think I like to blame the state for a lot of what went wrong with us. <laughs> and uh, the state's still there. So, and we didn't make a revolution for you guys. So I think uh, 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 we'll, we'll get back to that point. Well, we, you, that, I get what you're saying, but you yes, know you what did. I mean? The state is uh, as vicious and more vicious than ever. So I hear you and I appreciate that. But I, you know, what I'm saying is that in our era, and if you've averted it, it's just a great, building forward. Struggle often turned bitter, that's all. We wanted to be right. We felt how urgent it was to be right. We felt how urgent it was to step up. I'll say particularly as white people, we felt we had to throw ourselves, you know, between the bullet and the black sister on the corner or the black brother on the corner. Our privilege had to be purposeful and we were in times where people were, of course, being assassinated openly, nakedly. Of course, your time influences you. Now, I'm not saying this is a mild time and people aren't being discriminated against and we all you have to do is go visit a jail for one second or a prison to see what the differential treatment is around race and class in the United States, and to some extent gender, of course. But still, it's not the same as what was happening at our moment. And I think, I don't think it's hiding our weaknesses to say that that escalated our determination to fight back and to, we called it opening another front, mm-hmm. the idea of pulling resources, the repressive resources of the state away uh, from the black struggle and making them pay attention to us, some attention to us. Now, of course, I can't say it saved one black soul, or I can't say that the way we were trying to measure it was actually quantifiable. But that was our determination and our goal of being partners. Look at you two. How are you at a different moment? Where do you see the state? Hmm. Well, that's... Whew. That's a big question back at you, but you gave me a big question. I mean, there's there's been a you know this refining. They learned a lot of lessons from you <laughs> mm-hmm. of what to avoid, how to bolster, and we've learned lessons around. I think language fugitivity, born out of your literal fugitivity. You know, there are ways that we choose to say things because we know that the algorithm won't find it. Mm-hmm. That I think is always a balance of that verse. Like, how do you be clear? How do you name things for what they are and protect yourself from the gaze that comes with that and the attack that comes with that? And I think that's a that's a question that our generation, at least in my experience, has wrestled with in a really active way, right? Knowing that if you use this hashtag, this keyword, 
the blowback is going to be, the attack is going to be so extreme. So how do you say the thing and how do you have say it in a way that will reach people? That's one, that's one adaptation that I think is born out of them adapting to, to you. Well, can, can I just say one funny thing back that you'll appreciate? I don't know if anybody ever told you this, but there was a period in 1968, nine where we were under such heavy surveillance and we all learned sign language. And so we had meetings in silence, many meetings in silence, certainly in the national office of SDS, but also in our own apartments and lots of different places where we went for meetings. So <laughs> that was our, our, you know, moderately pathetic <laughs> way. Uh, and we tricked them. They're, you know, we wanted to trick them. We wanted them to think that we were would fold, that we would be afraid of facing something very serious. We were determined to surprise them. Yeah. Anyway, I just thought yeah. you'd appreciate no, that, that little. No, that's an, I, haven't, I hadn't heard that tidbit. I mean, to be honest, I think where the state feels the most prevalent to me is one in its investment in media and communications. I think that feels like one of the major differences. Uh, um, and kind of related to that, I also feel like a lot of state power has now been enveloped in corporate structure. So it's not coming through government agencies, but it's happening through consultants and through, you know, small firms and obviously and obviously the nonprofit industrial complex. So with that, it's like harder to identify mm -hmm. and, and mm -hmm. feels more shadowy and kind of like a cloud looming over as opposed to like really being legible in how to identify, you know, the, the the tentacles that are closest to us. Yeah, you see fewer guys in like trench coats and fedoras, you know, in the in the corners. It's more like this nonprofit ED or, or metadata or surveillance of our phones, um, you know, that especially in the first few years where I think, you know, direct action was at a more rep rapid pace, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, you found out, you know, was on some list or having some phones calls, listen to it. It felt like an honor, to be honest. It felt like, all right, I'm a, little, a little bit. We did want to right be path. noticed. So, but, and that's kind of actually my point is, there has been, from my understanding and things documented and foiled, you know, some surveillance or some attempts at some state intervention. They're not not paying attention. But really, in my experience, it has been these internal dynamics that have been more difficult to hold. And so I'm curious for you, as you've named this process of reconcile or or looking back, let's imagine the quintessential Let's see. When do you think you were your most like testy, most Ready most confrontational? Yeah. Let's let's give it a number like 24, 27. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I had to think back. So it was certainly 69, 1969. Yeah, yeah. So, so and then also, you know, 70, 71, those years of Cohen, the height of COINTELPRO and when we were in the, had the na National Office of SDS right, and we're right. traveling all the time and also then. When we were first underground. So let's imagine a listener that's about a 21 to 24 year old mm -hmm. that's really politically aligned, really has some hard lines, really is is about it. It is it's starting to build containers, starting to escalate or whatever. What would you offer or what does your perspective lend to how to keep those connections with the people that show up with each other? Because I think we've struggled to maintain from the generations the lessons of how to not be permissive, 
and to hold the, the, the principal lines, but to have this type of grace that we can stay together for a lifetime. Cause that feels like where our real power will, right. will come from is can we, can we give this 50 to 60 years as a, as a, a, a larger collective. And you didn't stay all connected for 50 years. So that's one piece of it, no. right? People drift apart and come back. No. And we had several, you know, severe splits and some of them, I don't, no, if they, and we certainly could have had a different attitude toward it, but I still look back and think, you know, if you didn't think the Vietnam War was a critical part where U.S. action and our tax dollars and our youth were being sent to Vietnam or part of the machinery of trying to keep Vietnam as a property of the United States, um, if that wasn't high on your list or the highest thing on your list, then we th- thought you were, you know, from Mars. You were missing <laughs> the entire scene and the entire importance of it. And as <clears throat> veterans came back and themselves were openly against the war and organizing their own organizations, that just became stronger. So it really was a 10, 12, 15 year period where I think. The Vietnam War was a pillar in, in internationalism in general. You could do that easily in Africa and what the United States was doing in the African independence struggles or Cuba. But Vietnam, because of the draft, affected everybody. So my law school class was 100 people, six women, 100% white, but every single guy was draft eligible the day we graduated. It's hard to describe to anybody yeah, today. I would flunk. I, I would. I would fail. I would. I would have to take. Let's run this back. Yeah. yeah. So they either, you know, had plans to leave the country. They had plans to scramble to try to find a job that was a deferment for those couple of years, or I, one person from our class went into the military. Only one out of a hundred people didn't want to, whether they were or became right wingers. <laughs> Or left wingers, you know, it was not a popular war and the draft was failing. And that was important to Vietnamese victory that it was failing. Yeah. The imminent encroachment of the draft, it's another side of something you named before, which is this urgency, whether manufactured, real, helpful, unhelpful, I think is a really important part. And I think really is the flip side of what we're able to see being here, which is what happens when you have time to transform, when you have time to reflect, when you have time to reconnect. That urgency, especially in relation to whiteness, is something that, of course, I've thought a lot about in my participation and has, on a personal level, but also on a movement level, been, I've watched it be incredibly destructive and create conflict because there is this, like, I'm seeing this in a new way and oh my God, we have to do something about this. Meanwhile, the people who weren't able to opt out of seeing that or who that was you know, readily available in their day to day have navigated to a balance or a, um, Dame said the three of accepting that which you can't tolerate of like, yes, this mm. is our reality. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I'm curious how you think about that urgency in relation to whiteness and its usefulness, its utility, and also how it can be detrimental. Does that make sense? Sure. (laughs) (laughs) 
Did I tell you the story about an eviction? So I got myself, when Dr. King came to Chicago, I hurled myself into it. And he, now it wasn't just him, but you know, this, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference team came to Chicago and Chicagoans on the West side rose up. So it was kind of a meeting of indigenous, not indigenous Chicagoans, but native Chicagoans and the Southern movement when King came to Chicago. But of course he got the headlines and it was a, you know, turmoil, but it was not just a turmoil in the, the way I think it's now told. It was a turmoil every day. There was massive organizing door to door going on in the West side of Chicago around housing and habitable housing and what was habitable housing and who had a right to it. And came up with the strategy of rent strikes and people were withholding their rent and we were had hundreds of lawyers protecting them from being evicted if they withheld their rent the way the law said you could withhold your rent. And then there were marches every weekend designed to drive Mayor Daley off the deep end and did drive Mayor Daley off the deep end. Different churches every night. I mean, I, I had the incredible ability to see waiting in a church night after night, every night of the week, not just weekend marches, you know, every night of the week, black churches across the city of Chicago packed, waiting, and sometimes waiting for three hours for Dr. King to show up and having other people kind of warm up the audience and choirs warm up the audience and fans as it, as it broke into summer and it was unbearably hot and sweaty and handheld fans. I'm using my hand to show here unbelievable outpouring, you know, the city hating Dr. King. We solve our own problems, Mayor Daly say, but local organizers coming up and joining with them. And there, as far as I could tell, there were no big differences between them, including an eviction happening. People shout out, there's an eviction happening two blocks away. We're in a church in, in Garfield Park. Everybody runs out the door and runs two blocks to where the eviction is happening. And there's a crowd and it's a hot summer day, so everything's potentially explosive. But there's a crowd of several hundred people, and we're watching marshals run up and down three flights of stairs in a building and throwing somebody's entire belongings, entire life, into a pile in the middle of this circle of people. Kitchen tables, kitchen chairs, cribs, baby clothes, on and on and on, you know, plates and dishes and cherish things and pictures. A pile is growing there and the crowd is growing restive. And I feel, and have you ever stood next to an NBA player? Have you ever had a yeah. feeling that somebody, so I'm feeling, I'm riveted here and worrying about what's going to pop off. And somebody says to me, would you hold my coat? And you realize that somebody very large is standing next to you. <laughs> and he hands me a powder blue seersucker suit jacket and walks into the middle and picks up the kitchen table. It's Muhammad Ali. And he walks past the stunned marshals, city marshals. And <laughs> yeah, that'd be a surprise. <laughs> stand back, <laughs> stand down, and walks into the building. And then 20 more people, then 50 more people, and soon there's nothing left of the pile of belongings. They're all back in the building. And he came back and took his powder blue seersucker jacket back. And, and me, I'm thinking, who called him? This is when he was not allowed to fight. 
This is the year that he was in Chicago. How did Dr. King and the Muslims know each other? I mean, for me, that was like, you can see how 101 stupid I was about what would happen. Dr. King would never come to Chicago without checking with a million people, right? And so not that everybody agreed, but that there was a relationship. Anyway, that was one of the things that stays in my mind all these years later, because, you know, it was a peace action, right? It was a kind of thing you do, the kind of thing you did by building Freedom Square. Yeah, it's theatrical, but it's logical and it's human and it's one-to-one as well as one in a million. Anyway, I and had it de-escalated the situation. Totally. Well I mean, those there was back, there yeah. was going to be no confrontation that day or with that family. Yeah. And it transformed all the people that just would have spectated, right? Exactly. We participate. We followed him. We picked up something. Well, I was holding the jacket. You, that's the million a million dollar jacket. Yeah. <laughs> so, I love that story and every time I sit with you and sit with y'all, the, I get this feeling of like these Almost, and I shouldn't do this, but these almost like larger than life figures, mm-hmm. these like yeah. almost like orishas or deities that that for me are in books and in documentaries, and you have all these firsthand experiences, mm-hmm. and it's it's such a it's such a a rich resource to be able to hear you tell these stories. So I, I want to invite you to talk about some more of these these folks and your perspective, and I want to go now to to Fred Hampton. I was going to say the, and, other, the other person, <laughs> and you know, so much of the work of SDS was in relationship to, or or in, tangential, or intersecting with the Panthers, and you interacted with Fred. You might be one of the few people we've had on to like have direct interaction and communication with him. And so, I want to just want to invite you to like reflect on him some more. Tell us about him, and is there anything that you don't see that's talked about in the record about him that is important for people to know and if not that's fine you could just tell us some of your, your well the record words. is pretty extensive but i'll i'll tell you a couple things you know one is he was brilliant and he studied and he read and he worked and he had piles of books by his bedside always and he you know was very interested in the law but also he was a leader from day one from the jump the Panthers were a phenomena. I mean, they were just a phenomenon. They spread across the country so fast, and they were trying to keep up, and they were doing breakfast programs for kids, and they were doing medical, free medical advice, and they were uh, also trying to read and study and recruit all at the same time. And of course, the forces of evil were after them from the very beginning in Oakland. And then as it spread across the country, the FBI and forces like that saw this as a major national threat. One of the many things we had the honor of doing was working together. We also argued and disagreed. So Fred famously thought the days of rage was a terrible idea. Yeah, that's one of his <laughs> biggest quotes. He, was, he wasn't happy with y'all. <laughs> he was not happy with us. And he, you know. He, some real, he pulled out some real big words. On he, I mean, he, custeristic gets thrown around. That's quite a phrase. Yeah, well, that was a little weird. But, <laughs> yeah. we, you know, we were like, if the black community doesn't participate, great, cool, great. Don't bring the, we don't want the police to be brought down on the black community. How could that possibly be our goal? It's not our goal. Our goal is to draw them off and make them 
spend more resources with us crazy people. So <laughs> we didn't convince them except in the fact of it. You know, it came and it went, demonstrations. I don't think that the that the black community, unless it was kids from high school kids wanting to be part of the action downtown, which is always a good phenomenon, um, I don't think it increased the the repression or the surveillance of of them. But yeah, it was it was a, a tough argument to have. You didn't want to argue with him. <laughs> <laughs> you wanted to sit, be part of the audience and listen to him. Mm. And you know the idea that you know, that they murdered him and that they murdered him with a, a FBI, CIA, Chicago Police Department combo. The plan, which it took six years to totally unveil how he was assassinated, how he was drugged and assassinated. Um, what can you say? It was a, a terrible tragedy, a terrible loss to the world. And the Panthers picked up the pieces and went on. I mean, I tried to learn the lessons in other parts of the country and even in Chicago and go on with the programs that they had. So I don't know what, what else to say about it, you know. So using that as, you know, in many ways, I think the most prescient example, I want to talk about loss a little bit. Because mm -hmm. um, that's the, I think, the flip side of the time to transform and the time having the time to grow is you also have the time to grieve and learn how to move through that process. Um, it's a very vague question and you can take it or leave it. Um, but what have you learned about how to hold yourself and the people you love in the face of loss like that? Because it's, it, it's, it feels kind of insurmountable, even the ripple effects of it, you know, decades later. Well, I have a couple of things to say about it. One is the Panther funerals on the West Coast and then Fred's funeral were the first funerals I ever went to. So you, right there you can see that I had privilege. Nobody I knew had had a funeral. Now, of course, I didn't have grandparents. They died young. But <clears throat> that's an example of my own cocoon of privilege. And... uh you know, also a lesson about what the state is willing to do. It's willing to do everything to stop insurrection. So the fact that you're not being stopped shouldn't ever let you think that there isn't a plan to stop you. It won't be the same. It's not going to rerun that film. But, you know, what happened to the L.A. Panthers and the Bay Area Panthers and here in Chicago and in New York, the Panther 21, it's worth a study of their brilliant platforms and their brilliant organizing programs and strategies, and also, you know, what was thrown at them and the price they paid. So part of our idea at the time, as I was telling you, was to, <laughs> to uh, draw off some of that as if they had a limited supply. They don't have a limited supply, but to open a new front. That's how we talked about ourselves. And uh, we wanted to fight. We wanted to show that they weren't as powerful as they looked. You can see that in some of the <laughs> communiques that we wrote, <laughs> taunting communities that mm -hmm. we wrote. But we we began to build a clandestine 
side at the same time as we were in the SDS office. Not to be reductive, but if if we were to distill this phrase, open up the new front, I feel like it's how you're framing what y'all's approach was at large. And so I want to unpack that of one, like, does that notion of separate new fronts show up for you in any contemporary senses? And I also want to talk about the the cost and the consequence of opening up that front or wanting to take on those resources. You know, people who were and who became your family had a lot of their life changed and taken and, you know, spent decades behind bars and shifted what your whole home life was. Um, so one with the cost that you experienced with you and your comrades, but two, just looking back philosophically with this notion of a new front, how do you reflect on that that principle or that strategy or that idea? Where, where does that sit for you now? Well, here's what I mean, what I meant by new front. What I meant was there were plenty of people resisting and fighting back. Puerto Ricans struggling in the United States, the Tiarina in the mountains of the Southwest. There were people all over this country, people of color, fighting back against the state. And so we felt John Brownish. We felt, you know, where's the where's the people who have the privilege, the stupid white skin privilege, you know, where are they stepping up here and what can we do? And we had a pretty mechanical notion of that, or at least exclusive notion of that. But we did decide that we would, you know, do some actions. Uh, and we decided that we would build for a time when we might build a clandestine part. Then two things happened. One, of course, was the assassination of Fred and the rollout from that. And another was the explosion, accidental explosion of the townhouse in New York City that killed three of our very dear and precious comrades. So those two things precipitated us, probably not necessarily, but in any event it did, <clears throat> precipitate us to accelerate the idea that we would build a clandestine thing and that many of us who had been in the leadership of SDS would be part of that or invited to be part of that. Just a very quick follow-up. In this idea of a new front, do you think you accurately understood or had a sense of how the state responds to white dissidents and then the lineages of those? Like there is, of course, the protection and the privilege in how that response is, but then there's also a long history of violence on white dissidents, you know, white people who fight against white supremacy, the state is not polite to and friendly to. Do you feel like you accurately understood that relationship or that history? Yeah, I think, I, well, accurately, I don't know. But <laughs> but I think we, you know, we read about the sisters who opposed slavery in the South. We read about uh, the people who, you know, were abolitionists and then supported if they weren't themselves involved in armed resistance to slavery. We read about resistance to World War One, U.S. involvement in World War One, and the price that the labor activists and, and Wobblies played in that. So we were trying to take in the thread of U.S. history in which we felt white people stood up, <laughs> you know, in solidarity without taking over or trying to obscure the power of the leadership of of people of color. And, you know, we were clumsy, and I don't exactly know what 
what the criticism is that I want to say, except compared to how you all have been organizing. I think that we were, we felt it was a very polarized time and it was hard to be not on one side or the other. And that's probably not right because probably most people weren't on one side or the other. (laughs) So there were a lot of people there that we were overlooking and a lot of people who did not come with us who later became, you know, important allies, contributed to various things, but didn't want to be underground, didn't want to, you know, leave us. And it took us a while to figure that out, that there was a base of support. And also, you know, this was a moment where there were multiple undergrounds. So there were gay people fleeing to the coasts on, on each side. There were people who were into the drug world, going to centers where that was available and legal and fun (laughs) and and a center of communities, people going to the countryside like this and people building a new life based on, you know, growing your own food and being healthy and taking care of people around you. So I, I feel like it took us a year to figure out that you didn't have to be us to be solid, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but you know, our initial approach was pretty harsh. This, this is what we have to do. And this is the only thing to do. So that's what I mean. When I say I regret, the regret is about our narrow and self-righteous, my, let me just say for me, my narrow and self-righteous view of what we were doing. That's really beautiful. I want to kind of circle back and, and touch back on a question Daniel asked before I have a pivot for us. But the, the, the question he was kind of asking that led to the Muhammad Ali story, I, I hear you naming this intentional approach to create this new front of a clandestine and eventually underground cadre that had these escalating direct actions as a way, if not in part or mostly, to account for white privilege in the face of this destructive intersectional oppressive system. Right. Right. And then you you also named having an understanding of the history of that being a lineage of how to, you know, be a race trader or how to, mm-hmm, should, mm-hmm. you know, you and Bill have on your wrist right now, John Brown lives. And so I hear you having a historical viewpoint from the sixties looking backwards. And now it's been 60 years since you took on that effort. How do you see that process or what do you have to offer about that process of addressing white privilege or white people showing up or taking on the frontline responsibility without doing too much. Where do you see that legacy now? Where do you see that responsibility now? Are there things you're excited about or the challenges you have for this continued lineage of John Brownism that I think y'all have worked to uplift? Well, I, as I said before, I think that what Black Lives Matter has created and its progenies, because we're now already in a stage post black lives matter world (laughs) well no we got our no no that's why i'm still wearing my my wristband we're not in a post black Lives matter world unfortunately but we are in a place where many of the black lives matter early activists are creating a range of projects and struggles naming them feeding them giving them energy and thought and voice microphones in front of us. (laughs) (laughs) I think that that's brilliant. I I, I can't tell you how much I'm in awe of it because I think you've 
seemingly done it without, I mean, the state has noticed, we can agree about that, but you have done it seemingly without big splits and big divisions and big losses and people appear to be able to, I don't want to say come and go, that's too frivolous, but be able to move depending on their life situation into intensive engagement with your work or a slightly stepped back but available or engaged thing. There's like lots of tiers of involvement. Right, right. Well, we didn't have that. It was all or nothing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That's not quite true, but it felt like that certainly in 69, 70. By 71 or 72, we kind of got it and people could define their own relationship to us. I'll give you a silly example. We would run into somebody or we would get close to somebody through jobs that we had. And there came a time where Bill and I would spend hours debating, do we have to tell them? Are we deciding for them Mm -hmm. to take this risk without their approval and conscious decision? Now, for some of our old friends, they knew who we were and that was a conscious decision. But for people that we found at work or people we got very close to, Anyway, it was an endless decision. You know, should we tell them the secret? <laughs> because once you told them, you couldn't untell them. And it, it, they couldn't say, I didn't want to know that. They had to agree not to talk about it with anybody, not to write about it. Anyway, it was like that. And we got very rigid about what was required. And, you know, some people just drifted away who wanted to drift away. You know, we were of an age when people were moving around the country. There was a lot of, some people went to Canada to get away from us. But other people, you know, like the commune movement, stepped forward. And so what am I trying to say? I'm trying to say it was always in motion, as we know all things are. And that um, we tried to get better about realizing that there was a range of ways to agree (laughs) without 100% involvement. And that made us safer and it made it more fun, you know. So then we tried some things that were more fun. What do you mean? You know, we had uh, ideas of breaking people out of prison, for example. Mm -hmm. And that was fun. That was fun. (laughs) (laughs) So fun. We had um, communication with other people who were underground, with the Black Liberation Army. Sometimes it was them telling us that we were fucked up. (laughs) Sometimes it was doing things together, providing resources that were asked for. Sometimes it was a temporary thing, like a prison breakout project that we'd throw a couple of people and some resources into And sometimes it didn't work. And sometimes there'll be things that we did together that nobody will ever talk about. Mm. Don't ask Bill. (laughs) (laughs) He's been waiting for somebody to ask. Just (laughs) kidding. And I do admire just that piece of it in listening to Mother Country Radicals and talking with you, the openness that you and him both bring. And then also the like, that door is closed. What it means to me is a level of integrity of like, we will share what we can share, but know that like, there are pieces of this world that are not open to everybody. And I, I really admire that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's not like I think we're the center of the world at all anymore, but I also feel like we owe people that who took risks with us. 
So I'm going to do the pivot now. Mm. Pivot! Speaking of lifetime commitments, we've mm. named them a few times. We're up here with you and Bill, Mr. Bill Ayers, who is this loving, sweet teddy bear, wise ass. <laughs> How did I get so lucky? <laughs> How did you get so lucky? So we had him on and really... You know, I had been knowing and seeing Bill for a few years, but really sitting down and having him on the show really opened up our relationship in yes. a new way. And my memory of it is he spent so much time talking about you. And every time I sit down with him, whether it's what's happening now or thinking back in memory, he just talks about you like you're such hot shit. And <laughs> he clearly, like, he clearly just like loves you and even has an admiration. And in some ways, like even still, he's named it, like looks up to you in this beautiful way. And so I just want to invite you to talk a little bit about this life you've built with this beautiful person who has loved so many um, and what it has been like, whether it's being, you know, in this land, y'all, you know, got married while you were locked up, you experienced being underground together, and now you have raised children and grandchildren together and continue to show up from this, me and Daniel say y'all are like the model of radical retirement. Um, <laughs> and y'all continue to show up and stay connected and stay plugged in with your comrades. And with, you know, I see y'all even showing up to the Real Youth Initiative who, you know, a, a, a work that we're really supportive of. And these are 20, 21 year olds. Right. And y'all are having them over all the time. So I, 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 I don't want to get too wide. I want to ask you just what has it been like living this life with Bill? Oh, yeah. Tell us about him. How do you see him? He is the most beautiful person. I, I don't know how I got this lucky, really. He is um, genuinely kind and happy. He wakes up happy every morning. He wakes up, you know, ready to have a wonderful day. And Yeah, what the hell is that about? I can't imagine being with somebody who's, you know, goes through life with the mountains and the valleys all the time. I'm not saying we didn't have our hard times. We did have our hard times, but we had them together and it wasn't, you know, we or we took care of each other. And certainly the time that I was in prison, you know, he came every day and took care of three kids and took care of meeting with the lawyers and the, all the stuff that was going on outside that I was not part of at that time. But it's not just those things. I'm naming the wrong things. You know, I didn't want to have children. I thought the only way you could be a, a real radical was to not have children as a woman. He didn't ever, ever say, let's have kids. Mr. Kid, you know, the guy who got into the movement by running a daycare center. You know, he waited for me, or I don't know, or he was willing to, I don't, I never said, were you willing to not have kids? <laughs> were you ever going to speak up? Anyway, one New Year's Eve, several years into our relationship, I proposed to him that we have kids. And he said, sure. So he didn't even say what took you so long or you, right. you fool. He just said, sure. But that's just a, I don't know, it's not a tiny example because it changed our lives to have kids together. But I'm so glad we did. And I'm so glad I had him and, and lots of women who I admired, of course, who had kids and I'd gotten close to their kids. So he is a, sun, a ray of sunshine on a cloudy day. No, that's too stupid. He's um, Sometimes the cliches are boring but beautiful and right, you yeah, know? Yeah. Well, he is like that every single day. Mm. He really is uh, fun. 
And uh, when we go to your demonstrations and are the last ones and can hardly see the front of the line anymore and are <laughs> falling backward all the time, we can laugh about it because, you know, there's so many things to laugh about. You know, we took care of our parents together as well as having kids together. That That is also an extremely intimate thing. You know, we got to know each other's parents, including the Alzheimer's parents mm -hmm. on both sides and fell in love with them too. So I just feel, you know, like I fell into the cookie jar. I don't know what to say. Yeah, I mean, so much of what you just named is the ways that he cares for the world, for his comrades, for movement, but for you. As y'all have aged together, what have you learned from him about care based on how he cares for you or how you've observed him care for the people around him? Showing up. It's so simple in a way because, you know, he came to see me every day in jail. I didn't know if it was ever going to end. I thought it was going to end with a big federal indictment because that's what happened to a lot of people who were in the same boat as me. And uh, I, you know, he took care of the kids. He managed to, how did he come down, you know, to that horrible prison and see me every day, every day? Um, anyway, it was a, it, it was a terrible time, but also then we just had so much fun. We had our babies at home. We figured out how to have them sleep in a basket next to the bed. I mean, it just, every step of the process included fun. It wasn't all fun, but it included fun and, and humor and an appetite for the sweetness of it all. I, I love the way you name this all as a type of showing up. You know, what brought us to this part of the, the world uh, was a, a, a retreat. And one of the things that folks named of what gave them the most hope, and they're just getting started, and that, you know, is this realization of seeing people show up. And the way you name all of the ways that Bill loves and cares as showing up, which is the same political muscle that we need, like whether it's social, whether it's in the family, whether it's, you know, for building ideological coalitions, the nucleus of what's needed is this will or this muscle or endurance to keep showing up. And so I want to shout y'all out on a method that I've peeped from y'all on how to sustain showing up. You guys come to everything. You guys come to everybody's birthday party. You guys come to every event. You guys are the, the, the best showing up couple. <laughs> But you pull the smoothest leave earlies that I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm like, oh, I can't wait to like build up enough show ups to like you. You get there first. We do. You get like my birthday party. Y'all were the first ones there. Y'all came up. I'm like, oh shit, Bill and Bernie did here. Y'all got there. You, you you did your round. We did. And if you miss the show up. You gotta miss the so so that so, is so true. That I'm is such the a part wisdom. about the leave early. I, yeah, that's for sure. That's part of the deal. <clears throat> How did that praxis formulate? No, <laughs> no, there is some some sustainability it's practice to that. Yeah, yeah. No, it's great. It's <laughs> absolutely it works. We've get, we've figured out how to make it smooth. Yeah. Some of the best parts of showing up are leaving. You know? <laughs> the earlier you show up, the earlier you can leave. That's exactly that's right. That's a lesson for the youth. <laughs> no, no. And I think actually in that, as we move toward ending, and thank you for your graciousness and love and care, 
you know, part of the the beauty of doing this show is that it's not just that we're talking to the people we talk to, but it's that we're talking to them in the moment, in the season, and in this part of the lifetime that we have the opportunity to. And so, again, this is kind of vague because it's hard to capture a point of this remarkable life that you've lived. But I, I kind of just want to give the opportunity as a companion to Damon's question at the beginning of like, what are the questions you're still wrestling with? You know, to ask like, what do you want to make sure we hear? We meaning Damon and me, but also meaning, you know, the extended family of the people doing this work. Like, what do you want to say and make sure that we hear? I already see you doing this. So this is just me adding on to it. Pay attention to the sweetness in your relationships. I mean, both the two of you, but I mean in your love relationships. Well, it's all love, but you know what I mean. In your other love relationships and in your families, your parents and that generation. You know, it doesn't have to be a lot of it, a little attention. You know, my week is made when I hear from one of my kids. <laughs> Just, a, you know, an email, a text, or whatever, you know. And you hear that? Bernadine says, call your mom. <laughs> I said, call your mom. <laughs> And mean it. Yes, exactly. But, you know, yeah, hold on to those you love. I don't want to step on your ending, Daniel, because that was beautiful. But I have a thread. I think think it's congruent. But I just wanted for the listeners, that should have been the last question, just for how poetic you framed that. No, no. As long as we all know. As long as everyone knows. That was was one ending. That was a clean, clean ending. This ain't Mother Country Radical. We're not not ending it clean. But that's actually where I wanted to go. And so, you know, to that point, I I can't get a conversation through without y'all talking about Malik, Chazen, Zaid, and the babies under them. And so in this time, again, this, this is a time capsule. It's been out in the world now, but in our introduction and in the conversation, we've referenced Mother Country Radicals, which is this amazing piece, this amazing tribute, this amazing text um, that tells you and your comrades' stories and the larger world story that made those extravagant, dynamic, and wild, crazy events come to to be. Um, So I want to just like hear, you know, one, just the pride of your son doing something so amazing. But you are so central in it, and it's such a, a an honor and a testament to your story. What has it felt like to hear it? What has it felt like to see that so many people in the world have listened to it? What has it felt like to do press runs and have to do events and panels and talk about it? What what has this experience been of having your children and the generation beneath you document your work in such an intentional, in-depth, beautiful way? I have no answer because I'm so flummoxed by the whole experience. And I didn't imagine it. I didn't think of it. I thought, you know, we've already done mainly what's going to be remembered. I can, we always joke about the New York Times having written our obituaries and the headline is already in and it's going to be ugly. <laughs> <laughs> They've had a document saved for a while. They've been waiting. Um, so, it, you know, I didn't see it coming. It was a complete surprise to me, and I consider it a love letter and a gift. Not uncritical. You know, you'll remember the really mean thing he says about me. You you won't remember. I remember. (laughs) (laughs) I made a calendar when I was in prison, and I had on it every black liberation hero and every Native person's birth date and 
date of the, their murder and assassination, and I didn't have in it his birthday. Oh, wow. <laughs> Zade's birthday. <laughs> it just didn't occur to me. I was making it for Zade about something he didn't know. But he took it as like looking for April 26th. Where is it? But, you know, you have these other things filling up the box there. Anyway, it's a funny thing that happened. I, but I feel totally shocked and grateful for it because I, I feel like, and then, you know, to tie it to the back and forth that we had at the time with the Black Liberation Army and have some of them speaking out with him about it has just been thrilling and deeply satisfying. As we were sitting down, um, you were saying that y'all recorded it right in that upper perch over there, which is where Daniel and Rosie are currently sleeping. And let me tell you, this is a top-notch perch. For, for, for those who are not here, it's a, an open-air, it's screened-in platform north of the house that we're in right now. And for the last three days, uh, Rosie and I have been waking up to the sunrise and to the birds and the deer and the, the animals. It's a, it's a top-notch perch. And uh, to have it also be a top-notch recording studio for that show, you know, that's pretty good. It's like when someone goes in a room where Prince plays, it's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> exactly. um, so, you know, you, you, it felt like what you were saying is as you were sitting having that conversation, you did not have a conception of what it would turn into and what it would be. So talk a little bit about that process of engaging and doing the interview for I had it. no idea. I can't, I... When I say that, Bill says, I say, and I didn't listen to any podcasts. And Bill says, I had a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. Our partners don't time. listen to our podcast either. <laughs> and uh, it's it's true. He did. And I, you know, was on it and I listened to it and I watched Lighty be part of it and a lot of recording. But I, I didn't think of it as, I don't know what, it wasn't my world. And so I wasn't doing, it was right when I was stopping driving myself. That's my excuse because driving, don't people listen to podcasts yes, when they're driving? That is true. So anyway, I didn't really get it what Zaid was doing. And I certainly didn't have any idea that it was going to hit the zeitgeist in the moment that it did. So I'm, I'm very happy that he did it. And I'm very happy that it was so loving. Yeah, I mean, it's a testament to his work, but it's also a testament to the work that you have devoted your life to. You know, he told the story beautifully, but it's an amazing story. It's an inspiring story. It's a story that, like, I feel so grateful to learn from and learn from you and, you know, carry the pieces of this lineage that I just feel so fortunate to have received. So, Thank you for the gift of this time, and thank you for all that you and Bill have poured into us. It has been unexpected and incredibly rewarding and has made, I think, our futures so much more possible. You've been so loving to me from the time that I met you, and I'm so grateful for it. And really, you know, beyond having reverence to be able to really be in relationship and connection to you and Bill and your family and y'all's lineage. And I'm thinking of Barbara mm-hmm. and, you know, I'm thinking of y'all's contemporaries. I'm, I'm thinking of Miriam and Ruthie and, and Robin. Exactly. Um, and to, to be in your village and in your tent, the possibility of the dedication of a lifetime feels real. And I feel in that same way that you mentioned in 66, compelled to endure. You know, because I, I've seen you do it, 
And so you said it like you didn't leave us a revolution, but you know, the, the definition that I understand it is that is a process and is not determined by the outcomes, even though there are some really important outcomes that we're striving to get and that we want to see. Yes. Um, but you are truly a revolutionary in our time. And as we strive to hold that baton, I just want to thank you for dedicating your life to transforming this place and being willing to transform yourself in order to make that more real and more tangible and concrete for people. Um, and this conversation is only a microcosm of all the wisdom and all the stories and all the, the feats and experiences that you hold within you. Um, but thank you for sharing it a little bit with us and our little ragtag audience that checks in to what we're talking about, because uh, it's really a <laughs> gift that we'll never forget and we'll cherish and hold for a lifetime. But I have to tell you back at you because I feel like, you know, I didn't get to know you as well as Bill has gotten to know you. Nothing like living together for a week in the wilderness <laughs> <laughs> with one bathroom, yeah, yeah, yeah. one shared bathroom. No, I feel like we've collectively done a real good job on the we bathroom have. share. We're yeah. Very good. I yeah, have yeah, to yeah. give lots of shout outs. Um, <laughs> but also, you know, to meet your beloved partners, you know, hold on, you guys. That's a, that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. They're fantastic. And um, I know other parts of your family, and I'm looking forward to meeting other parts of your family. Uh, and uh, want you to meet other parts of ours. So thank you. Thank you. Much love to you and your family. Thank you for welcoming us into yours. And much love to the people. Peace. That's a podcast. Ah, boom, boom. it's a podcast. <laughs> I didn't know what it was. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>